Oh Lord, we are we are overwhelmed today at your greatness, your might, your power. The God who spun this universe into being, who made this planet Earth and everything on it, who created humanity and breathed life into us. Lord, we ponder your greatness and feel so insignificant. And yet when we look into your holy word, you tell us you tell us that you want us to be your sons and your daughters. And it's overwhelming to think that you love us this way. Not just humanity as a whole, but each of us individually. So, Lord, we tell you that we love you. And we ask that in this hour today, our hearts would be open to you, to hear from you, to see you, to engage you, to experience you, to be led and taught by your Holy Spirit and by your Holy Word. In Jesus' name, amen. (coughs) Excuse me. Well, welcome again. So good to uh, see all of you. <clears throat> um, Jordan mentioned it. I'll mention it again. I, I didn't get it in the bulletin this week, and that one's on me. Um, we're starting our series leading up to Easter next week. Some of you in life groups probably know about this already. And to do this, we're going to work through John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Now, I'm not going to cover all those, but I'm going to cover a portion from each of those chapters each week. You'll cover a portion of it in your life group as well, and there's some study guides that go with that. So in preparation for next week, I would encourage you to read through John 13 several times this week to get ready for next Sunday and um, for your life group and all that. So if you would do that, I'd appreciate it, and I think you'd get a lot more out of the message. Well, we're talking about making disciples, and this is going to be kind of the last official message of this series. I did tell you that this is something that's on my heart, and so you're going to see, you're going to see this woven into messages during the year this year. I don't think I can get away from this, this whole idea, this burden I have um, for us to be witnesses for Christ. I want to do just a little review. If you remember, Garen started us off on this series, and he talked about building bridges to people, and that is so important that we have to connect with people before they care um, what we have to say. We have to love them. Uh, We have to love them first before they can experience the love of God uh, through our testimony and our witness. And then Jason preached for me that Sunday. I was sick on on salt and light and the opportunities that we have uh, to be that in this world and how God intends that. And then last week I talked about making disciples and just a little review before I jump into today's. I talked about three things, if you remember. I talked about that humanity is without spiritual life until they find forgiveness in Christ. This is, we're all born dead in trespasses and sin, the Bible says, and we choose to sin, and no one is good, and no one is right with God until they come to faith in Him, and they have an experience where they're born again, saved, converted, transformed, moved from death to life, however you want to say that. 
The second truth is this. God passionately pursues the lost. It says in 1 Timothy 2, 3 that God our Savior wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. God passionately pursues the lost. This is the whole story of Jesus coming to earth and dying in our place and bearing our sins. The third truth is this. God uses human beings to communicate his message. He could have done something else. Sometimes I wish he'd have done something else because I don't think I'm very good and I don't think we're very good at doing this. But God, in his own plans and for his own purposes, chose to use human beings to communicate his gospel message in this world today. And it's important, and what we do is important. And I talked last week, and I'm not going to review all those verses, but if you remember in James 5.20, it talks about if you turn a person from the error of their ways, that you save a sinner from death. It talks in Jude 22 and 23 about snatching people from the fire. So... It's important. It's important. And in this world today, we, we sometimes, I think, we've lost this idea that we have to rescue people from hell. And though we don't talk about it a whole lot, everybody has an eternal destiny, and there's only two places. There's heaven and there's hell. And the Bible doesn't give us any middle ground. And I, and I, and I can't take that away. And we can't hold out hope that somehow God's going to do something different because that's all he's told us. Could God do something different than that? Yes, he could. But that is all he has revealed to us as human beings in his holy word. That is all he's given to us. So I can't make up some hypothesis about God doing something different than that. I have to operate and we have to operate by the truths that we've been given. And the truths that we've been given is this. From Hebrews chapter 9. It is appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. That's the light we've been given. So that's why. That's why evangelism, sharing our faith, being a witness for God, making disciples, however you want to say it, is so important. And, you know, I don't think. I think all of us understood the principles that I was talking about, that people are lost without Christ, that God passionately pursues them, but somehow it breaks down when it gets to us, and I've tried to figure that out. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to run through a list of excuses we give, but I think one of the big reasons is that if there's one thing the devil wants to keep us from, it's from us coming to faith in Jesus. And if we come to faith in Jesus, then what does the devil want to do? He wants us to keep from living it, and he, wants us, he sure wants to keep us from telling other people about it. So I think this is a very real, in a very real sense, this is a place that we engage spiritual warfare. Now, and so it shows up in lots of excuses, and I think the devil whispers these in our ear. I'm too busy. Yeah, all of you are. I am. We're all too busy. Right? But I'm just saying, if we're too busy not to do what God's commanded us to do, then, yeah, we really are too busy, and we need to change some priorities, and we need to change our schedules. The second reason, well, my family comes first. And listen, I believe in family. It's a unique responsibility we need to take care of. But I want to be honest. We can do more than our family. 
We can. Um, third reason, the excuse that people give. Other Christians aren't reaching out. So if they're disobedient, so that gives you rights, well, I'll just be disobedient too. That, that, that logic doesn't break, it breaks down. How about this one? Evangelism isn't my spiritual gift. And there is a, a gift of evangelism, but all of us are called to be ambassadors and witnesses for God. All of us have been given the command to go into the world and make disciples. So some people may have a special gift in that, but all of us have responsibility. The last three. Um, I'm scared I won't know what to say. I, I, think, I think this is real, and I think sometimes I, th- I think that we can hold back from spiritual conversations because we're afraid we're going to get into something and not know exactly what to say or what to do. And oh my, we're going to get somebody hanging out there and then we're going to drop the ball. And, and so um, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that in a couple of weeks, about giving you some tools of, of how you can share specifically. But let me say this. Let me say this about sharing with other people. Don't be embarrassed to get into a conversation and somebody says something to you and you might not know the answer. Hey, people ask me questions sometimes, and you know what I say? Uh, let me think about that. Let me chew on that. Let me get back to you on that. There's no shame in that. It's okay to say that. You don't have to... If you're going to speak for God, it doesn't mean you have all the answers. Because people don't need to encounter people who have all the answers because they don't have all the answers. Nobody has all the answers except God. So uh, don't be afraid of that. But we're going to talk in a couple weeks and give you opportunities to get a hold of some tools that you can use to share the gospel. Two last ones that I think hold us back. Number one is, well, no one comes to God unless he draws them. And we get the idea that somehow, since God is the one drawing them, that that lets us off the hook. And the last one is, everyone who's going to be saved will be saved. And I think we can take those last two truths and take it to an unhealthy place in our lives. So I want to talk about that today. And, and, and this, is, this, is, this, is big, this is big theological stuff. So I'm going to do my best, and I've prayed about this, that it'll be understandable because I don't want to, I don't want to, you know what they say, they say if it's uh what did Andy Stanley say? He said, if it's a mist in the pulpit, it's a fog in the pew. And so I, w- I want to be as clear as I can because I don't want it to get lost before it gets to you. So hang with me today. But I want to talk today about, about a couple big rocks and, and, and a couple big things that are important. And I think there's a, a strong sense in our culture today in this idea of, of God's sovereignty. And I am a I'm a, I'm a huge believer in the sovereignty of God, and I'll unwrap that in a minute. Um, and I, but I think sometimes people go so far that it somehow it snuffs out or at least diminishes any sense of human responsibility. Because we say, well, if everyone who's going to be saved is going to be saved, and I'm going to take you to some verses in the Bible that seem to say that. If everybody's going to be saved is going to be saved anyway, why should I make a big deal out of being a witness? Why should I do evangelism if God's going to save them anyway? But we can't get away from what we read last week, that there's this theme through the Bible of God using people, God commanding people to go. So there seems to be human responsibility, and there seems to be the sovereignty of God at play here. 
I think and I fear that sometimes we can become so focused on God doing it that we don't do anything. And I think that is a dangerous conclusion. And I would go so far as to say an unbiblical conclusion to draw from the facts that we know. And I've, I've wrestled with this and tried to put it into words for a long time. And I mentioned this book recently. I'm going to mention it again. Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God by J.I. Packer. It, it, it's one of my new top ten reads, okay? I'm just saying, this is a great little book. It's not a long read, but it's a powerful read. And I, I read his book, and he helped, hmm, he helped give me some words. He helped give me uh, a voice to maybe speak to this with a little more clarity. So let's begin by talking about the sovereignty of God. It's, the sovereignty of God is a very powerful and a very comforting doctrine. You say, Pastor, what do you mean when you say that God is sovereign? It just simply means this. God's in charge. God's in charge. It's the idea that God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. And not only this, God is completely autonomous. He operates completely independent from any other influence. Sovereignty means that he has absolute authority and rule over this whole universe. That's what sovereignty means. It's so important. Um, Arthur, Arthur Pink, who wrote books on theology, said that the sovereignty of God is the foundation of Christian theology. It is the center of gravity in the system of Christian truth, the sun around which all the lesser orbs are grouped. End of quote. I like that. And I think that's true. The sovereignty of God is at the core of everything. So don't hear anything I'm saying today and somehow run to a conclusion that I'm taking away anything from the sovereignty of God. I cannot, I would not. And I want to tell you, I strongly believe it. And I, I would submit to you that I believe you probably do as well. And, and I'm going to prove it to you. Do you ever pray? Anybody here ever pray? Raise your hand if you ever pray. Why would we pray if God isn't sovereign? Why would we pray if God isn't sovereign? If he doesn't have the power to, to be at work in our real lives. So we believe and we stand there. Our text today is Romans chapter 9. Let's turn to this. Because we're going to see a manifestation of the sovereignty of God very clear and very powerfully portrayed. Now I'm jumping into the text because I didn't want to read the whole chapter because there's a lot of foundational stuff. But, but let me just give you a little background. He's coming up to the point where he's talking about in the Old Testament. You remember there was Abraham. Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac married Rebekah, and they had two sons, Jacob and Esau, twin boys. Okay? Maybe you can remember that from Bible history back in Genesis 28 or somewhere along there. It's 27, 28. Okay, we're going to read now starting in verse 11. And this is talking about these two, twin, these two boys before they were born. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, speaking of Rebecca, the older will serve the younger. 
just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it? Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and to make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. May God bless the reading of this, his own holy, inspired word. We see the sovereignty of God there, and that passage speaks to what we call election, or God's power to predestine. It's God choosing, independent, independent of any other influence free from anything else. So if you read this passage in isolation without the rest of the Bible, you read this and it said, end of story. Done. That's it. God chooses. God elects. Those people find him. The ones, the other ones don't. Is that the end of the story? Well, it's not the end of the story because it's not the end of the Bible. There's more scripture here. What, what, is it, what does it say in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17? All Scripture is God-breathed, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly fur- furnished or equipped for every good work. So we have to look at this, but we also have to look at rests of Scripture. And we see other verses in the Bible that speak to human responsibility. In Deuteronomy 30, Just as the Israelites are about to enter the promised land, Moses issues the call to choose between life and death. And in verse 19, he says, I have set before you life and death, blessing and curses. Now choose life so that your children may live. Now, election, human responsibility. Does, when he said choose life, does that mean that they had a choice? When we see all through the Bible all the commands that are given to us, do we choose to obey them or to disobey them, or is that totally beyond our control? So, I want to make this clear. I, I, as I look at the scriptures, I, I see two truths 
I see a truth of the election of God that I will not diminish. I cannot diminish in one iota. And I see another truth of human responsibility. This whole idea of obedience. And I'm not going to diminish that either. You say, well, pastor, those two things don't fit together. How do you reconcile those two things? I will give you a short answer to that. We can't. We can't. And I've had this thought for a long time. And I've lived with this tension and I've lived with this mystery and I've talked to people and debated people and gone back and forth on this and I live with this tension between these two truths. And it was a little bit affirming to me to read that Packer lives with this tension too. He, the language he gave to this, he called this an antimony and he defined an antimony as a contradiction between conclusions that seem equally logical, reasonable, or necessary. And applying this to theology, it's when we have a pair of principles and truths that we find in the Bible that we can hold both of them up. But we can't make them meet. So I believe if you read the whole of Scripture you can't miss this tension. It's there. Now, what some people do is they, they go to one extreme or to the other and they make everything fit somehow over into the sovereignty election box or all into the free will human box. I, I don't, I, I can't do that. I have to live in the tension. This is not a made-up problem. It's forced upon us by the facts itself. If you read the Bible, it's unavoidable. And we didn't invent it, and I don't think we can explain it away. And I think in simplest of terms, we accept both of these truths, and we recognize that the deficiency lies within our own human understanding. Because I believe in ways that we cannot understand or do not understand, these two things complement each other and go together. And that's hard for us because we're used to reconciling things. We're used to making sense out of things. We're used to our human minds being able to put these things together in a nice little cogent package. And I think we have to speak to ourselves and we have to coach ourselves to allow them to both coexist. And you know, we really shouldn't be surprised that we would find things in the Bible and truths about our God that we can't understand. You know what it says in Isaiah 55, don't you? For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Should it surprise us that the great and mighty God of this universe who put it all into space, who made everything and put all the pieces together, that there's things that he does and ways that he works that we can't understand? 
So I just want to tell you, I'm pretty happy living with this tension. I, I'm, I'm okay. I'm good. I don't feel deficient. I mean, I'm deficient compared to God, but we all are. Why should that surprise us that there's things about God that we can't make fit together? So, I want to live in a way that honors the sovereignty of God and the election of God. And I want to live in a way that recognizes my human responsibility that God has given to me to go, to make disciples, to speak, to be an ambassador, to be a witness, to be a light. You know, I can't do anything about the election side. That, that's all God. I can only control the human responsibility side. And I've been called to share the good news. And you've been called to share the good news. And, and God's prescribed way of getting his word out, as I talked last week, is through the gospel. Remember Romans 10? How will they hear unless someone goes and preaches to them? Romans 10, 14, and 15. So, it was an encouragement to read a very godly, theologically astute person like Packer and puts it together in, in a way that made sense to me. And he speaks to the sovereignty of God and the election of God and he doesn't blink. But he also speaks to human responsibility and doesn't blink. And he said it this way, Christ's command, speaking of the command to make disciples, means that we should be devoting all our resources of ingenuity and enterprise to the task of making the gospel known in every possible way to every possible person. And what we don't want to do, what we don't want to do is we don't want to hold so fiercely to the election and predestination of God that we fail to devote our resources of ingenuity and enterprise to making the word known to others. If we believe that to, to the point that it creates a lack of concern for lost people in our hearts, if it keeps us from being active, if it keeps us from anything less than a sense of urgency, that I, that I, don't, think, I don't think we're reading the whole Bible. I think we're picking and choosing. Again, the Bible calls us to be ambassadors and heralds and stewards of the gospel. It calls us not just to teach people about God, but to turn people to God. To not only lecture people about God, but to love people to God. Paul understood this. Paul wrote Romans 9, an inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But he also wrote 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where there's that wonderful passage that calls us to our obligation to be representatives and ambassadors. He said, we stand, we stand in Christ's place on this earth. With his message, be reconciled to God. That's what we're supposed to do. Tell people you can be right with God. You can get right with God. You can be pleasing to God. You can be accepted by God. You can surrender your life to God. You can be adopted into his family. We are called to stand with that message. He believed that so fiercely that he wrote something that's very akin to what 
Packer built his own, 1 Corinthians 9.22. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means I might save some. Remember, now Paul again, is already, he's already talked about predestination and election. I mean, he's got that down. But he also knows that he has a part to play in God's plan. So I believe that Paul fiercely believed in election. And he fiercely believed in human responsibility. And I think so should we. So should we. So I've got three conclusions. They're not on the screen. You can write them down if you want to. The first one's kind of my personal one, and the second one I think I can really argue from Scripture. Three conclusions. Number one, this is, this is my own personal one. Don't waste your time trying to reconcile these two. People have been doing it for hundreds and thousands of years. Theologians have fought about election and free will or sovereignty and human responsibility, whatever you want to call it. They have fought about it for thousands of years. You can end up more in one camp or more in the other camp, but you can't get away from both of these truths, okay? So for me, I've quit trying to reconcile them. I've made my peace that this is one of those things that's beyond my understanding. Now, you may want to continue your journey and you may spend the rest of your life seeking to reconcile these things. Or maybe you'll find something that reconciles in your mind. I just, I just, that's a very personal conclusion. So you can have it or you're not. If you don't like it, don't take it. It's, it's, it's free. I'm just laying it out there. The second two conclusions I have, are, I think I can argue from the Bible. Our command is to proclaim the gospel to everyone. Our command is to proclaim the gospel to everyone. You know, I think about the sower and the soils. The sower went out in, in Mark 4, and he sowed the seeds everywhere. Everywhere. And the third conclusion is, those who respond to the gospel are obviously the elect. Problem is, on my side of, on my side of the, the human interaction, I can't look at you and say you're elect or not. I don't know. God knows. That's his business. My job is to sow the seed to everyone and believe, and I think, believe that anyone, anywhere can respond to the gospel of Christ and give their lives to Christ, whoever they are, whatever they've done. And, and we have powerful arguments of that in Scripture from the thief on the cross who, who was such a wicked man they were putting him to death. He wasn't even fit to go row a galley, okay? He was so incorrigible that they were putting him to death and there was hope for him. Don't waste your time, but waste your time if you want to, but don't waste your time. Um, proclaim the gospel to everyone. Those who say yes are obviously some that God has chosen. If they say yes. But God's command to us is to action. It's to go, it's to speak, it's to tell, it's to make disciples. Every church I've ever served in, I would say that the weakness of the church has been at this point of us making disciples. It, it, it's easier to obey other commands. It, it just is. 
Uh, And I think, and I go back to, I think one of the reasons is this is an area where Satan really works against us being obedient. He he says, well, don't offend anybody. Don't be bold. Um, Be careful. Or somebody else will do it. Or you know if they're going to get saved anyway. If they're in lack, they'll get saved anyway. So you don't. You don't have to do anything. All these things run through our heads, I think, to let us off the hook. And and, and just to be honest with you, you, it is easy for all of us to just, I mean, we all have a selfish, we all have a selfish center of gravity that that pulls us inward, that doesn't want us to put ourselves out there with people or to take a risk. So I want to close with a, a story that Chuck Swindoll tells in one of his books. I read it a long time ago, and I can't forget it. I had to, I had to go look it up. It goes like this. On a dangerous seacoast notorious for shipwrecks, there was a crude little life-saving station. Actually, the station was merely a hut with only one boat. But the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the turbulent sea. With a little thought for themselves, they would go out day and night tirelessly searching for those in danger as well as the lost. Many, many lives were saved by this brave band who faithfully worked as a team in and out of the life-saving station. By and by, it became a famous place. Some of those who had been saved as well as others along the seacoast wanted to become associated with this little station. They were willing to give their time and energy and money in support of its objectives. New boats were purchased. New, tra- new crews were trained. The station that was once obscure and crude and virtually insignificant began to grow. Some of its members were unhappy that the hut was so unattractive and poorly furnished. They felt a more comfortable place should be provided. Emergency cots were replaced with lovely furniture. Rough, handmade equipment was discarded, and sophisticated, classy systems were installed. The hut, of course, had to be torn down to make room for all the additional equipment, furniture, systems, and appointments. By its completion, the life-saving station had become a popular gathering place, and its objectives had begun to shift. It was now used as sort of a a clubhouse, an attractive building for public gatherings, saving lives, feeding the hungry, strengthening the fearful, and calming the disturbed, rarely occurred by now. Fewer members were now interested in having and braving the sea on life-saving missions, so they hired professional lifeboat crews to do this work. The original goal of the station wasn't altogether forgotten. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decorations. In fact, there was a liturgical lifeboat preserved in the room of sweet memories with soft, indirect lighting, which helped hide the layer of dust on the once used vessel. About this time, a a large ship was wrecked off the coast and the boat crews brought in loads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. Some were dirty, others were sick and lonely, 
yet others were different from the majority of the club members. The beautiful new clubhouse suddenly became messy and cluttered. A special committee saw to it that a shower house was immediately built outside and away from the club so that victims of shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. At the next meeting, there were strong words and angry feelings which resulted in a division among the members. Most of the people wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities and all involvement with shipwreck victims. It's too unpleasant. It's a hindrance to our social life. It's opening the door to people who are not our kind. As you'd expect, some still insisted on, on saving lives, that, that this was their primary objective, that their only reason for existence was ministering to anyone needing help regardless of their club's beauty or size or decorations. But they were voted down, told if they wanted to save lives of various kinds of people who were shipwrecked in those waters, well, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. And they did. As the years passed, the new station experienced the same changes. And it evolved into yet another club. And yet another life station, life-saving station was begun. And history continued to repeat itself. And if you visit that coast today, you'll find a large number of exclusive, impressive clubs along the shoreline owned and operated by slick professionals who have lost all involvement with the saving of lives. Shipwrecks still occur in those waters. But now most of the victims are not saved. Every day they drown at sea, and so few seem to care, so very few. End of quote. So, so, so let's hold fiercely to the truths of God. Let's hold fiercely to God's sovereignty that he elects whom he elects. And let's hold fiercely to the commands we have in the Bible that God in his own wisdom and economy has chosen to use human beings to communicate his truth. When Garen preached, he asked us that day about building bridges to think of one or two or three people to bridge to. These are people that, that I think God's going to place on your heart that somehow, some way, use all your resources of ingenuity and enterprise to figure out how you can connect and communicate the good news of Christ. Because again, God uses people. God does it all. God uses people. That's it. May God help us to be obedient. May give a, God give us a heart and a burden for those who need him. Let's stand together for our closing prayer.
Let me remind you after the prayer that we're going to have a prayer time in rooms 5 and 6 for Heidi this morning. If uh, you missed that, that's in the bulletin. You can read about it. Also, there's a prayer quilt for her that you might go by and tie a knot and say a prayer for her. Father, be at work in our lives. Help us to be the men and women that you want us to be. Lord, if we haven't found you, if we don't have this peace in our heart that we've been adopted in your family, may we seek that with all of our heart. But Lord, if we know you, if we know you, may we shine as a light for you. May we be faithful to stand in your place here on this earth with the good news that you offer to every person that we can to be reconciled to God. And we have the confidence and the certainty that everyone that is supposed to find you will find you and you will bring them into your family. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.